I'm going to see. Call up the Twitch chat, actually. So I am Mr. RPG Hour. Uh, they, them, um, I have with me, and I hope that, uh, I, I don't know if anybody wants me to change their names while I'm calling everyone out. Uh, next, I have Pin Paladin, she, her, uh, Eldritch Crow, he, him, Space Moose, he, him, and Robo EP, who is with us via a very lovely image rather than a, a video call. Uh, so you're going to see a smiling picture for him the entire time, but I promise he is here. Uh, at least there's an icon on my Zoom that shows he's here. Wait, it's kind of quiet. Uh, is that any better? No. Is that any better? Wait, which mic is it grabbing? Hold on, I think, hold on. Is that better? Okay, so it's grabbing the wrong mic even though I set it up multiple times to grab the other mic. Woohoo, that's lovely. Uh, so we are talking about technology in uh, tabletop role-playing games, specifically fantasy. Um, and my spicy take that may set off Crow that I can already feel the eyes piercing through. Um, I think that it is a cop-out when a fantasy game does something like cell phones or something that takes modern-day technology and tosses it in for the sake of um, uh, a fantasy game shouldn't just stay still. Um, I, I get that and I understand that, but I think that it's a cop-out when you do things like say, oh, well, I've got this magical device, and if I push these sigils in a certain order, it calls somebody. I think stuff like that is a per is a cop out personally. I'd love to see more stuff like uh, magical pigeons, where you do you take a scroll, you do origami. It looks like a bird. The bird flies off. It looks like a real bird in flight. It goes to that person. It speaks whatever's on the scroll. They're able to sort of send another message back. I want technology that looks like it evolved from the world, rather than technology that just makes our technology fit into a fantasy world. Okay, see, that seems totally reasonable to me. <laughs> <laughs> we, were talking, no... we were talking the other day. I almost felt like like you were gonna you were gonna take that as like a. a, a, a... Oh no, I'm <laughs> I'm like half on your side, and I'll say I have two reasons why I feel like on the one hand you're right, and on the one hand that won't happen as much as any of us <laughs> want it to, unless we're the ones running the table, and that's mostly because depending on the game you're playing unless you're playing a heavily simulationist game, technology and fantasy RPGs and magic and fantasy RPGs only exist for two reasons. They exist to entice the players to use them, and they exist to facilitate play. If they don't do at least one of those two things, they drop to a background aesthetic almost immediately. So for those two purposes, you have this instance where the magic and the technology has to either be interesting enough to use so like you said the origami paper pigeon which i think would be damn cool or it has to facilitate plays and that comes into a lot of issues when you think of games you know we'll take dnd as the biggest example where the items it gives you or the abilities it gives you are mechanics heavy but not necessarily flavor heavy and that's intentional because half of D&D's whole idea is to sell you settings. So they need to be able to reskin things for various settings, which means they need them to work relatively the same, but be able to look fairly different aesthetically in each one or come across differently. And in that instance is where you wind up with players using arcane cell phones, because unfortunately, not everybody has our brains to come up with origami pigeons. <laughs> To be fair, that came from an anime that I saw recently, and I was like, oh, I'm totally using this And as soon as <laughs> so I see Crow. <laughs> and it was so good, though. It was. It was so beautiful. Like, it was, theirs wasn't, they, they don't actually do the origami themselves, but they tap the scroll with their wand or their magical um, athame, and the scroll t transformed into a bird, and you saw it, like, fold and things like that. And I was like, oh, I love that. That's what I need. Um... See, that I feel like works really well if you write something that is both system and setting. If you write a system 
that can be bolted onto different settings, I feel like that's something that won't show up as much in terms of that level of tying into the world. See, I wish that was the truth only because I've played so many games. I've looked at it and I've, I've seen like games that are very specific and they don't even have it. And it's uh, there was a game that was very heavy. I can't remember the name of it now. Um, it was a very dark fantasy game. And in the book, they're like, you're going to be traveling a long time. And they had horses. And for horses, they had a couple of options. Uh, they had a war pony. They had a pony. And they had a horse. And then for that, they had a, um, uh, a military uh, saddle and a regular saddle um, and a wagon pull saddle. And that was it. And I'm like, this game is heavy. And all we get are three types of horses. There was no other kind of creatures. And they even talked about how, like... The creature, uh, the the beings of the north had these giant salamander creatures that they rode, and I was like, I I feel like there should be more to this. So I I wish that was the case, but I mean, it doesn't even feel like flavor wise we get that with games that are even heavy. Um, I'm hoping that we kind of see more of that, but yeah, there there comes a point with with games where you have to choose a balance between. Is this going to be modular enough to do whatever we want to in the future with it? And is it going to have enough enough flavor and enough um, originality in it to to make it worth playing in the first place? Also, there's a question here. Sorry, Cliff, I don't mean to interrupt. But how many players actually care about the, how the horses work versus how many players well, actually I care do. that you just don't <laughs> kill the horse? <laughs> You know, like, is it a matter of, okay, we really want to get into how this works, or do we just want to get into, you have a horse, don't let it die? Well, I'll, my thing is, as a creator, I, I can get into this sort of crippling anxiety about how in-depth I, I need to go about the mechanics. Like, I may have this great idea for a um, some kind of uh, creature as a mount, but then do I really need to uh, drill down to the level of, you know, saddle, tie, knots, and that sort of thing? Like that that tickles, you know, a, a completionist gene in me. But at the same time, like I, I feel bad if I don't either go that far. I'm like, oh well, I, I need to go and get a degree in this now so that I can <laughs> be authentic when I put this into my creation. You know, when someone stopped reading after like paragraph two, I'm like, no, that's what I needed. I ride salamanders now with giant praying mantises. Oh. Well, maybe that's why books get uh, broken up into supplements so often. So that, you know, you've got your core book right here. You can do whatever you want with it. If you really want to find out about giant salamanders, there's a whole book over there about them. Right. Well, and it can be done fairly easily because if we look back at older versions of specifically D&D, just because that's kind of something that everybody knows, if you go to some of the OD&D stuff as a paladin leveled up you could get special mounts and it was real quick and easy to talk about it like the ability to do it doesn't have to be super in depth but i mean it just seems like a lot of games moved away from it because you used to be able to as a paladin get like i think it was a unis unicorn or pegasus mount at like a higher level and then there was something about um um like a griffin or something at one point in one of the games so i mean it doesn't have to be hugely, you know, super in depth. Uh, I mean, but I mean, it would make sense if you're in a world, if horses are used to till the land, you, you're going to need a magical mount or some kind of mount to go into battle if you've got huge battles constantly. So, I mean, look at those flying creatures. You can get an aerial advantage or, hey, we're in the mountains. What about you know, war rams or uh, giant salamanders or rams was said in the chat. So I'm trying to bring it in. <laughs> um, but I mean, uh, you know, I mean, underground stuff is really cool too. Um, somebody mentioned that they had a purple, they had a, their players rode a purple worm through the underdark. Yeah. And that's all really cool. I think the big reason why it's fallen by the wayside is because the big thing that, technology in fantasy RPGs has to contend with, for the most part, is player abilities. With regards to use, with regards to it being implemented, with regards to depth, you need to make it interesting enough and useful enough to top a teleport spell. You need to make it interesting or useful enough to, to top a fly spell. And when you... This is one of the things where... Um, 
I kind of advocate for the limiting of player abilities, but the broadening of ability applications. So instead of giving someone a fly spell, you tell them, okay, you get a short range teleport this many times a day. And by short range, it's like, you're going to get to the other side of a door. And that's about it. Now you can get in and out of, out of places quickly, but that's not going to come in very handy when you need to go cross five miles of desert, you know? So it's one of those things where um, I guess player power creep becomes the counterbalance to it in a weird way. Um, I don't know if any of you agree or disagree with that. I, I agree to a point, um, and I don't know if anybody else has anything on this, uh, but uh, I think that that's where technology comes into play. If you've got a war saddle that holds magical cannons on it, that fires at it, cool, we've got a teleport spell that we can go all the way over here, or we can bring these really cool mounts that can also do really cool stuff. You know, and I think as soon as you start adding that in or, hey, sure, you know, I've, I've got this mount and it carries a giant bag of holding or, hey, it's got this really cool device that I can't transport magically because it won't transport magically. I, I think that part of it is, is that we we let technology get into this factor of it's fantasy. Let's set it wherever we want. Let's do generic renaissance, uh, pre-renaissance, um, and then, you know, let certain things kind of lift out of that but then i think the technology of it kind of sometimes falls by the wayside in a bad way um and not even it doesn't even have to be big it can be something simple as a small blurb this is what it does you could fit like 40 of them on a letter size page type deal um i mean i don't know and, and you there's so many cool cultures out there that you could add stuff in and just like flare it up real quick and easy that if you're involved with that culture it doesn't take much um i mean you look back at the history of flying on brooms it wasn't actually brooms originally um it was a device that was used for spinning um yarn or wool or something oh, i can't remember what the device is. how did i not know this uh -huh. I, holy it, crap it was it's 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 like a paddle looking thing and it's used to help uh as part of the process of getting getting the wool and all that prepared. I can't remember what it's called, and I've seen one in a museum, and I got to talking to the curator about it because... Maybe? Okay, I gotta um, go look this up. <laughs> but right. I only know about this because like, I've, I've gone from Christian to neo-pagan to atheist and studied everything in between that I could, and I came out with these little things, and I'm like, there are so many cool magical cultures, even in real world, that we can borrow from, like, why don't we have this technology in campaigns when they're so medieval in nature? I mean, even the Bible in and of itself has some cool things if you're, like, super into Christian stuff that could easily be broken out. Um, it, there's, a, there's a term used for, um, I don't know that it was just uh, in, in Jewish culture, but I've heard it spoken a lot about in, in churches and things like that, that people call themselves scroll eaters because certain people, you would chew on a portion of the scripture in a way to hold the knowledge closer to yourself or gain the knowledge is what they would talk about and it's like okay cool you want to use that scroll you have to chew on a piece of it it's got six pieces that you can chew on to cast that spell yeah and like those are all great examples and great ways that like people who want to do world building on their own or even you know collaborative world building at their tables can bring in aspects of their own culture on the other side of things i feel like technology in ttrpgs especially is the one thing that goes by the rule of cool as much as as like normal play goes by if it ain't cool it ain't happening <laughs> okay i have now completed my my tiny research and yeah it was a distaff uh yes. which is yeah you know, um it usually used for flax but it could also be used for wool or you just held the, the prepared stuff um before you spun it and yay i know a new <laughs> thing that's great <laughs> yes a distaff and i mean it, it's a, it's such a neat looking thing that you can literally talk about magical versions of it spinning the flax spinning the wool doing everything on its own and doing so much more hiding in plain sight like 
instead of just having like one little thing, I don't know. And I think there's just so many cultures that like living in Texas, mm-hmm. married to a Hispanic woman coming from a Hispanic household, I was raised in a Hispanic household. There's so many neat things around the Hispanic culture that like, I know there are game developers who are Hispanic and I look at their games and I'm like, where's all this cool stuff that we could have? And I don't just mean like, like, oh, the, the everybody knows about like, you know, the El Chupacabra and like some of these monsters and things like that. Like there are so many cool little nifty things that are talked about brujas and, and, and just the cool things that come from them that could be added in to make flair. And I just don't see it as much. And I don't know. I mean, that there's some unfortunate uh, other talks we can get into about um, stuff that gets left on the cutting room floor because it's seen as non-marketable. But I feel like that's a little bit outside our scope. Well, and piggybacking off of what, what Crow was talking about, like when player capability and the mechanics kind of trump that, that you know, that item or that capability, like a, a mount, then you have to sort of tack on additional mechanics to reintroduce that that cool factor, like airship, for instance. Like an airship, if it was just a boat that flew without anything added on, well, it's immediately you know kind of undermined or trumped by the teleport spell or overland fly. We're speaking of D terms, so you have to add on an entire additional mechanic that gives the ship its own thing. And then if your setting isn't necessarily centered around that, you have to either incorporate it into the setting or make special occasions for it to be useful. You know, that's why paladin mounts have kind of transformed over time, still speaking in terms of D&D, because you can't take them into a dungeon and after a while the party can travel wherever they want to via teleportation circle, touchstone, whatever. And so my fire breathing celestial eagle lion is a, a trinket, you know, it's a toy after a while. So but I'm gonna call BS on that they can't fit in there. If an if an orc, if a half giant, if uh if um dragonborn, if all these large creatures if you read about like how tall they are come on man i've stood next to horses that weren't much taller than me and i've stood next to them that made me look like i was too tiny and i guarantee you that they could walk through that entrance of that cave the entrance of that dungeon whatever like if we're if we're assuming that all these are like this actual size and if all these creatures can if all these beings and species can fit through this door there's no way that like special riding mounts can't like i'm about to reveal myself as the biggest redneck ever Speaking as someone who has uh, dislodged a horse from a laundry room, yes, they can fit into a dungeon. <laughs> I've seen deer in houses at friends' houses before. We we left the back door open and we come back in and there's a deer like chewing down on somebody's food or something. Like, oh, yeah. I mean, there you cannot tell me that these mounts can't fit in through a door. Like, I've literally seen things like this happen before uh and so yeah, it's a... <laughs> maybe the question is more like once they fit are they going to panic and kill themselves on their on the while they attempt to, to escape and i mean there's and, uh, 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 that's 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 a whole other <laughs> leg of it yeah if we get into the mount slash familiar side of things specifically all night there's that direct problem of oh god my player doesn't want the cute thing to die so the easiest way to prevent that is for the GM to ignore it or write it out, at which point it gets sidelined like we've talked about already. The better but more difficult way to do it is to create circumstances in game where the player can use it and we're just going to say they don't take damage or whatnot. Or you do what I do and you murder the familiar as it's off scouting. Um, <laughs> I have I have done that. Uh, I only ever did it because I knew the player still had fine familiars, so they could just resummon it. Um, but uh, I'm I'm a monster, so uh, yeah, it's this issue of balancing it against the players, and I kind of find it funny that Cliff brought up airships because airships and airship combat rules were the first thing like I wrote up as a supplement for D and D and was going to attempt to publish before I moved away from it. And it was a time, let me tell you, like setting aside the fact that D&D does not handle vehicles well whatsoever. <laughs> this is my note to self. 
<laughs> if you tell me you don't want the familiar to die, it won't die. That's the thing. Is like the this was the player who is always very much about consequences. So they're like, all right, if I'm gonna do this thing and there's a consequence for it, we're gonna follow through on it. And I'm like, okay, there. This happens. But um, yeah, it's it's that idea of like you also have to fit the mechanics of whatever tech you're trying to write into the game you're writing. And that can be extremely difficult if you're doing a pre-built game that isn't really centered on technology as a whole. Or it can be difficult if you're writing a new game and you realize that like, oh, this game is going to involve a lot of travel, but it's not about the act of traveling. It's about what happens while you travel from point A to point B. What I'm hearing is that there's, there, there's, uh, there's almost as many kinds of games uh, as there are kinds of players as far as people who want to get in the mechanics, the people who want to get really nitty gritty about um, uh, internal consistency and world build, 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 <laughs> world building, which <laughs> that's, that's, that's a whole other challenge. Uh, and people who are more interested in the role playing and people who are more interested in building relationships with cute woodland creatures. So I think there's room for just about everything. In the uh, in the RPG world. Before I get on another rant, uh, Robo, you've been quiet. Um, yeah. No, <laughs> 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 well, uh, let uh, let's go back to uh, how you said at the start with a spicy take. About how you want technology to evolve with you with the world, and like you think these like runes and cell phones like is a cop out. It's not. It is evolving with the world. Uh, there's a bunch of magic items that have you know. Oh, it it'll uh, sneak up and say it'll. You can record a little message and you touch it, throw it, and it's a distraction. Well, why can't that be? A cell phone. I think it can be. I think what he, what uh, RPG Hour is concerned with is uh, uh, internal consistency in, in the in the world building. It's, it's like so if if you've got if you've got this thing that acts like a cell phone, why is there not all also you know these other things that act along the same lines? You know, and and if everything has followed this one particular uh, course of aesthetic for a while changing changing that to accommodate this one thing that doesn't really fit just because it's familiar to us isn't isn't really uh, uh is, isn't really the best course that there can be a better solution for uh you know aesthetically or or game wise for what they're trying to do i may have stepped all over you there rpg uh you, that may not have been what you meant. No, no, that's that's pretty much it. I just uh, the reason why I say it's a cop out to, to kind of expand upon it is, is the fact that like if you take Ravenloft for instance, one of my favorite D and D settings ever, and you look at it, the towns are mostly unguarded. They've got some walls, but they're not really there. And it is a world where they're literally dominated by creatures of the night. Like it is a world where werewolves and vampires and all this are running everything. So why don't they have like better battlements on the walls? Why don't they have more people focused on trying to follow holy orders to try and fight back against these? Why don't they have more holy technology? That right there is the big thing that gets me about it. Why is there not holy tech? Like just literally the church popping out holy items like having somebody over there that's a prophet standing there talking about, hey, here's this next thing over here. Like, why isn't there more? I want technology that feels like I'm stepping into the world and the world has still developing and it isn't stuck. Like I get the idea that if you look at Ravenloft against some real world scenarios of how people viewed um, Transylvania, Romania, like if you view like how some of them viewed a lot of the technology kind of lines up with when some of the lore, uh, the folklore and beliefs are, but this is fantasy. We've also got a whole bunch of magic in there that people don't believe in, in the real world. So where, why didn't that magic and that holy and the worship transform even more? Why don't we have unholy tech? That's the other thing that gets me. I want unholy tech. 
I want <laughs> cooler carriages that take you and things like that. I just want stuff that's con consistent with the world building. When you've got a world where the, it talks about how there's monsters constantly attacking villages and stuff like that, and you're like, cool, we developed a thing that looks like a cell phone, and we have a thing that's kind of like a TV, um, and we have this thing that's like a monorail system. Okay, but what does that do to protect people? What does that do to really help people? Why did that develop and not specialty walls that are like giant gear systems that pop in and out to throw somebody or to pitch somebody away? Okay. The easy answer is fantasy capitalism. Yes, yes. Uh, <laughs> of course. <laughs> but uh, no, I think the more difficult answer is that's a flaw that pops up when you have game designers attempting to world build. Um, and that's mostly the fact of world building and game design are two very different things. Um, you have a lot of things that on paper seem cool, but in practice just won't function or won't encourage the type of play that you're trying to encourage with the game you're making um and that's where you start seeing those disparities like the lack of walls in ravenloft is exactly so that when the players show up to a town there's a likelihood that they're going to face some beasts of the night while they're there um it's it's kind of a cop-out but it's an excuse to say okay these defenses are down because you players are taking the place of those defenses basically mm -hmm. At, at the same time, I think there, it's a more sort of, there's a, a niche for what you're talking about. And it's the various punks, you know, cyberpunk, steampunk, mage punk, where you have this underpinning thing that is the driver for technology. So mage punk, I was a big fan of, I don't know if any of you guys remember this or any of you all remember this, uh, Arcanum, the uh, like real-time strategy game that was, Yes. Right. So it's real-time strategy game set in a fantasy setting, and the driver, you know, the technology was magic. And you have steampunk and a bunch of, you know, similar punks, but that changes the focus from this sort of more general fantasy world to it centering on this this technology and the mechanics that underpin that, and they come with their own sets of rules and all that. So rather than it being a bolt-on to a potential setting, like including it in Raisin Lost, it is the setting, it is the thing. And that allows for the exploration of that greater sort of granularity that you're talking about for everything without it potentially distracting from the overall focus of setting because it is the focus, you know what I'm saying? So, and that, you know, that, that's actually kind of, the, uh, kind of what I'm driving back to as well. Um, is that when some games do this, they do it well. Um, taking it back to uh, tabletop role-playing games, um, Iron Kingdom is an amazing mage-punk-style game that also teeters on steampunk, but it's still mage-based. There's a lot of magic based in it. But they call it full metal fantasy is what they call it. Um, and it, 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 it does a lot of that really well. And I think that like when you, when you do it, when you do it right, it shows the game feels a certain way and that's that's to me is so many settings are like cool i'm getting this really cool setting i'm getting this really cool thing and you're like it's a high magic fantasy campaign setting um and there's all these cool things and the only time that it feels like we get a lot of that now is when we get into the sort of less serious side of things um and you could still play those games in a serious tone but they come from a place of like nostalgia or funness, like Lasers and Liches, um, which is a D&D campaign setting where there's it like one of the types of um, uh, dragons in there is like a neon dragon. Um, I mean, like they, they totally take the, the, the 80s aesthetic and turn it into a fantasy campaign setting that has a lot of modern day things. And it works because of the feel of the setting it feels naturalized. Um, and I'm, I'm going to pick on it, and he's not here to um, defend it, but um, uh, Josh loves Eberron, and Eberron is, like, to me, the biggest offender in not following through on tech that makes sense. Like, they've got some cool tech, don't get me wrong. They've got some stuff, but it just feels like they go from 0 to 60 on a lot of it, and it's, it's just kind of like, cool, where does this come from? Where is it going? Why? 
And it's well, not even... I think part of the problem with that is when it comes to D&D, specifically D&D, there's an issue of you're supposed to come up with those questions and answers to those questions at your table. They they give you sort of the... How can I put this? They give you sort of the cliffs notes and the stepping stones for this world history and this world lore and this magic that exists, but they want you to fill in the blanks. And the reason why they want you to fill in the blanks is because filling in the blanks is how you get an adventure out of it, which, you know, makes a lot of sense. If you need an answer to the question, how did this particular magical tech start to exist? Why answer that question in a two-page summary in something your players are never going to read when you could just have them discover it themselves. Which would make sense if it wasn't D&D that has like 30,000 books for Faerun and... Okay, this is where I give <laughs> D&D a pass because they also have five editions of a game and multiple decades of history to go through. And frankly, I think that's just something that comes with the blood of the game. That is... That is a problem where like they've reached peak market saturation and that is the consequence for peak market saturation in my opinion is just and too need, too much. They need to hire somebody like POC Gamer to go through it because they like if you've ever if you've ever gone and checked out the lore dive uh, stuff where he sits on and just talks about the the history of some of these games like some of the inconsistencies of them i had to go back and look through old uh D, D books to be like was this really this weird was this really this off was this really this and um so i mean it's 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 not even consistent through the series if it was consistent and they simply just built on it like each edition was an era or age i would and they'd be a novelist that too but <laughs> it it would make so much more sense but we get these books like D&D where it really is like it doesn't have to be two pages but if it just bar save is one of my favorite campaign settings and it's the campaign setting for earth dawn and when you're reading about the technology and stuff and they, they kind of give you a oh hey this came from xyz or this exists here and you get an idea of why is the technology level where I'd love it to be for what makes sense for it no but to me um Oh, oh, now Josh is here <laughs> after we've already talked uh, bad about Eberron. Um, yeah, uh, <laughs> you, you missed our, you missed our one sentence of Eberron shade. Um, but no, but, but bar save has a really, really neat um, setting and, and the technology fits the world and it fits the way that the magic works and it fits a consistency. <laughs> Robo stoking the fires. It was not 20 minutes of Eberron bashing. More like maybe 10. Eberron? Don't you mean Eberron? Not participate in Eberron. the Eberron. 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 <laughs> Just so you know. Alright, so what is a technology that y'all would like to see based on current tech in a game and it could be any any tabletop fantasy role-playing game out there what is something that based on the tech that it is with the story of the game that you you'd like to see added in oh i want to see better fantasy medical tech straight up because fantasy healing annoys the living hell out of me all right my turn to rant sorry uh, okay so here's the reason it annoys the hell out of me first off a lot of games just hand wave it you're healed now it opens up its own set of problems. A lot of games try to gatekeep it via cost. Okay, why is it this expensive? What goes into it that makes this cost worthwhile? But on the other side of that, the reason why I want to see better fantasy medical tech is because, especially with player-leveled systems, when you're dealing with people who gain extraordinary powers, not everybody in the world has those powers. Not everybody's going to have access or the ability to get this magical healing so actual like normal medical practices have to catch up because all of a sudden you've got people who can regenerate limbs but that doesn't mean crap if that limb's gonna wind up getting gangrene in two weeks anyways and you don't know how to fix that that's my right i have a, I have a funny story with that i a, a group that kind of pissed me off i had them spinning for hours because they had all this uh, magical healing 
but nobody had the medicine or heal skill. And I was like, oh, okay, everyone heals themselves with magic. Who knows the Heimlich? <laughs> So, oh, there's there's no fantasy Heimlich maneuver because the gods and whoever else has given you the ability to regenerate limbs and you know close any wounds and everything's fine. So you're you're choking on mutton. <laughs> Who here knows what to do about that? Cast as many spells as you want. <laughs> it doesn't just. I'll, I'll pose you a question. Why do anything about it when you can just resurrect them after it? There you <laughs> go. <laughs> so. Um... <laughs> There was something brought up in chat that just says Bruja eggs uh, for magical tech. Um, for those of you that are not familiar with it, um, in Brujaria, uh, eggs are part of a healing that's not just of the physical body, but it can also be of the, um, the mind and of uh, the spirit. Uh, so the eggs are kind of a essential thing. That would be a nice touch in some games uh, if they've got the right writer behind it. Um, and uh, uh, on healing, there's some really... And, and, I, and, I, and I don't pitch these kind of games. I love crunch. I, I, I'm i on two spectrums of games. I want super crunch or I want like no crunch at all. I hate in-between games. Like D&D skills drive me nuts. Like I would rather just get rid of them. There's not enough of them. They they just, I, I can't, I can't some days. I just look at it and I'm like, I'm starting to write additional skills and I'm up to like 20 additional skills at some points. <laughs> um, but um, I lost my train of thought because of skills. Oh, crunch. <laughs> One of the things I love about some crunchy systems is that critical hits do damage. They like break your leg, break your arm. Um, they, you know, crack your skull, crack your clavicle. Like some of them get real into it, some of them don't. And I love that little flair because now you've got to find somebody who, um, for one game that I really love is Rollmaster. Um, a lot of people call it Chartmaster. But one of the cool things is that you've got literally blood healing as a style of healing magic, bone healing as a style of magic. And like, there's even talks of like how to get healed in the real world. Like they talk about medical tech and that's one of the, not to the extent that I'd love, but it's more than things like D and D and more than things like, you know, a lot of these OSR hacks that come from D and D or even just a lot of the other fantasy games out there. They've got some cool little like micro medical tech things that are a lot of fun. Yeah. And this kind of loops in because I feel like that comes part and parcel with um, designers not necessarily being world builders. You know, they design a mechanic to make sure you can get back up and do the things that your character is built to do without thinking of that question of, okay, how does this change the setting we're working with? Specifically when it comes to long games and games with long histories like D&D, where you have so many different settings, all of a sudden that question just becomes a nonbo. It you, you stop worrying about it because why come up with an answer to that question for every individual setting we're going to create? when we're on a six to eight month development schedule and our investors want to make money. There is that side of things, yes. Mm -hmm. um. Now, this is where I will say the best games I've seen do this are always like one book or less and tend to be created by small studios or individual people. Because these are the people who are doing a passion project who love to write about these things and aren't doing it with a like an investor's oversight on them how, how many months did aetherborn take uh three and counting oh, okay I, for some reason i thought it was longer than that um it might push like four or five but that's when i was tinkering with it as still like a pseudo dnd hack still beats mine of um 14 years now <laughs> but that's exactly my point like 14 years gives you the spread of time necessary to write about the things that you care about and put the things you care about in your game. I have entire you... sections on how to build magical tech and uh, holy tech. Exactly. Give you, <laughs> give you a studio with 50 people, including artists, editors, layout, all that, where all you have is oversight and how much of that gets cut. True. Now... You can you can tell too with a lot of these systems like who on the design team you know was really really passionate about equestrian or a shipwright or you know just because that section is very very detailed and then you move on to the equipment and there is armor 
and there are weapons. And then, okay, we'll move on to that next session. Section. So, I like to take bits and pieces of other systems that have that that crunchiness, that granularity, and if I can, you know, sort of shoehorn it in to what I'm working with, then yeah, that's fine. But you know, like I was saying earlier, I, I hit a I hit a point where my depth of knowledge is, you know, bottomed out, and I'm now trying to figure out: Do I need to go look up? multiple Wikipedia pages. <laughs> Feel ashamed for what I just wrote in chat. <laughs> oh, that's just me. Uh, Josh asked, uh, is there a TTRPG studio with 50 people? And I said, no, nah, it's just one intern doing 50 jobs. <laughs> oh, you're not wrong. Are you insulting indie or wizards? Wizards. <laughs> I mean... <clears throat> See, here's the thing. If it's an indie developer, they're not an intern. Yeah, they're the owner. They're paid like an intern. But yeah, yes. if they're paid. Ow, that that, <laughs> that that hit me something personal right there. Uh, but yeah, and like there's some great examples of games that have done that even just recently. We look at Monster Care Squad. We look at um, Mnemonic. Uh, we look at Bolt that just funded. Each one of them has a very different, narrower focus. But because of that narrower focus, they get to lens out the things they focus on to be much more expansive. Bolt has one of the most expansive combat systems and one of the fastest-paced combat systems you'll experience in a TTRPG. Monster Care Squad basically got no combat because that's not what it's about. It's about healing. It's about taking care of other creatures. And those are sort of polar ends of the spectrum when it comes to those certain elements. But you see that play out, especially when it comes to that question of what type of game are we making? Then you see problems happen with longer games where it's like, we're not making a game, we are updating a game. What do we keep and what has to go? So it sounds like the the questions we're boiling it down to are the, the, the same questions that every other uh every other storyteller uh, comes to, which is, um, and, uh, internal consistency in world building, deciding what is important in their, in their story and what stays and what goes, because there's a lot of stuff that gets cut. And uh, the in, incessant, just rabbit holes of research that you can go on if you try to fill out every every aspect of it, and so I I I think the uh, yeah I, I think it's going to come down to what's what's important for the story that they're trying to tell, which is probably a reason why a lot of the kind of flavored tech gets left out, which is unfortunate, but you know in some cases necessary. And sometimes it just comes down to cost because you got to remember if you're making a print RPG, you're paying oh. by the page, basically. Yeah. You might get three pages and be told, okay, it has to fit in this space. Also, there's going to be a drawing of a helmet. So get around that. Yeah, like, oh, that's another good question. How much how much wordage gets cut when you include a piece of art? I wonder. And how much how much does artwork lend itself to reinforcing a technology level in an RPG? I wonder. I'm gonna say art has a lot to do with it because when you look at a lot of these books that are indie and you look at like what's going on in them, you get an idea of the tech that they're talking about that you might not see in other games versus you look at Wizards of the Coast and it's kind of, you know, you can see like, oh, this really cool thing happening and then you go and look at it. And you're like, you can look at something and you're like, cool, I need five 15th level characters to pull this one thing off and uh you know just to get to, just to get to this magical item and i mean granted with D, it's really like you just need five third level characters to go get that magic item that can destroy the world but um they may or may not survive it but uh you, you say poor war mutt but in, in all honesty it's if he were left to just roam he would literally chew the walls and chew the floor um, I, I love him, but if I'm if he's not being physically watched, which uh, it's it's either you're watching the child or you're watching the war mutton. Um, but he's 
See, now he's quieted down. I don't know why he's. I don't know why he gets like this sometimes, but he doesn't do this always. But um, Josh in chat does bring up a good point, though. It's not art or writing; it's how well you can mesh it together. And while I agree with that, there is a certain amount of work that gets put in by writers that immediately gets destroyed when artwork comes in. Destroyed is a harsh term. The necessity of it becomes eliminated by art. And you can see that evidenced most strongly in comics because how much narration gets cut by the comic panels on a page? How much description gets cut in a TTRPG book when you no longer have to describe ranges, you can just have little diagrams indicating ranges. Uh, that was one thing that I felt like uh, Quest RPG did very well with regards to range and effect range is instead of explaining it with words, they give you something like six diagrams, like five or six, and that's about it. And that's because they were a game that didn't care about range all that much. But um, <laughs> Josh, I know you're just messing with this, but you brought up a good point. <laughs> uh, so it's that idea of like, okay, how do we balance this out so that our artwork supports our writing and our writing supports our artwork? Because a big clash in tone can happen there too. If you write like a high fantasy setting, but all of your artwork is grimdark, you have a tonal clash. You need to have, you need to go fix that, and that's going to mess with the technology levels that's perceived for playing the games. Really great point. You hit that uh, show don't tell high mark, where you may have this uh, very you know flowery, very purple prose for this thing, but. If you actually put the picture in there of the dragon, then, oh, okay. And that can be very evocative or more evocative than the text. And it helps to eliminate a lot of the, well, not a lot of, but a good portion of the um, misinterpretation, I guess. You know, we, we see in media of all types where, oh, I had this image of this character in my head from reading it. Well, people's reading comprehensions are of varying degrees and, you know, um, and, and qualities there. So very important in a tabletop RPG where you have the picture that can, you know, demonstrate things and eliminate a lot of the ambiguity potential. And then, and then you know, sort of bringing it back around to, to technology, just like Crow was saying, like, if, if you've been writing this flowing description of a starship in this book, and then you show me something that looks like it's out of Pirates of the Caribbean, <laughs> you know, what, what exactly are you, do you want me to infer from that? Is there an anachronism? Is there a reason why this is in here, it, you know, just close to the, the setting? Or no, okay, well, everybody is pseudo spell jamming around here with these pirate ships, but in this high technology, high borderline science fantasy setting, so. Um, Josh said in chat, uh, with regards to my comic books comment, uh, that's a different medium though. In TTRPGs, ideally the writing and artwork can be viewed individually and still make sense. Now, Josh, I'm going to counter that for a quick second because if they don't interlock at least to some degree, then you wind up with a problem and I'm going to call it D&D here uh, where I feel I love D&D's artwork individually. I hate the implementation of artwork in D&D. And there's a specific reason, because the art doesn't support the text and vice versa. You get images of items. You get images of characters doing impressive things, which are all great and good. You get fantastic cover art of multiple characters in a pose against a great monster. But none of that helps you understand the textbook you're about to sit down and read in the PHB. None of it helps indicate. I just recently finished a skim of, and I say a skim because it is a beefy book. It's over 600 pages of uh, Burning Wheel. And I was reading into it because it has some fairly in-depth um, social combat mechanics. But one of the first things it does is it gives you a small little legend of icons that it uses throughout the book to indicate what sort of tone that the narrator of the book is taking. Is that necessary for everything? No. Is it necessary because Burning Wheel is 600 pages and a lot of it is the person who wrote it um, preaching about game design? Yes. 
that's the reality. But that artwork supports the text. Now, okay, I can see where you're coming from here. Uh, Josh says, if you make it where you can't have one without the other, and it, that's an accessibility issue and just bad practice. That is also true because you do need to be able to functionally read the text. You also need to worry about screen readers in this day and age and things like that as well. But you shouldn't have to worry about, how can I put this? You should be able to rip all of the artwork out and while still understand it, it should be easier to understand with the artwork in for those that can use it. That is a certain thing where it comes down to actually like planning and layout and stuff like that. And that's where you pull in other experts to help, but they should never be entirely separate or you run into the D&D problem where like they have half page artworks and those are, don't really do anything. It's also a question of like, what comes first? Does the writing part come first or does the art come first? Or are you shoehorning it together at the uh, at the end when you say, well, we have this picture of a dragon, but where can we put it? Because we're we're short on illustration or, so, well, we've, we've, got, we've got this stuff, but we don't have anything to go with it. Let's commission this guy. And then he gets it back to you five hours before your, before your deadline is. And is it perfect? Maybe not, stick it in, let it go. And it would be great if that never happened, but that's just kind of the reality of publishing. Back to what Crow was saying with them intersecting in a great way. Um, if, if you've never looked at our Talsorian games, um, they make some really great games in my personal opinion. Um, and, and I'm a big fan of anime and mech, and they've got a game called Mech Ton Zeta. And um, inside of Mech Ton Zeta, you can build, it's, it's a very gear heavy, so if you're not real, ready and willing, to build out a mech by point cost, by you know purchasing the chassis, purchasing everything, it might not be for you. They've got some pre-built ones that you can grab and go, but it might not be for you. I love the way that mech combat is. I love a lot of things about it. We just did an episode on it. Um, it I, I really like it, but w w when you go down and you're looking at how some of these are built somewhat similarly, and you see the drawings on them, you can see like how a subtle change can be such a big change on what you're going for and they complement each other and it, but it's not a necessary thing you can read it and get oh hey these are completely different mechs even though there's very little different about them they can handle different things they can do different things their movements are hugely different um and they also use uh hex grid maps uh showing in regards to like how movement and stuff like that works and how certain things work which is definitely i i I'll be honest, I've played a lot of games uh, over the years, and some of the older games that use hex grids, even stuff that talks about zones rather than like f actual movement rates and things like that, when they do that, it, it is a great help for some of us. Um, and I think that, you know, if you can definitely pair words with an image for, mm -hmm. those, that can, for those that can view both, but also have it well written out where people who are using word readers can listen and get the same idea... If you can't do both, then back to what Josh was saying. If you can't do both, then, you know, you really need to hire somebody to come in and do it for you. But Yeah. Absolutely. And I feel like this comes down to a lot of, especially when it comes to technology and technology being represented in artwork, comes down to strength of direction and strength of leadership. If you're working with just yourself as an individual writing a game, then you can take the time to fine tuned representations. You can take the time to go commission artworks because if you're working by yourself, you don't have a deadline on this, really. Like, th that's the thing. That's the great thing about being an indie developer. You don't have a deadline. Unless you've already done the Kickstarter. There is that, <laughs> but hopefully you're not doing that until you're well within end goals for the game. Uh, on the other side of things, if you're working as part of a company, deadlines are a bane of your existence. <laughs> um, that That is going to be a thing. You're going to have stuff that gets uh, rushed and all that jazz. So you just kind of have to hope and pray that your leadership is a good lens kind of overlooking everything. That's all you can do, really.
Oh, and when I when I say when I when I made the the crack about indie developers and Kickstarters, um, I backed a Kickstarter. I was actually a part of the. Um, um, I was a part of the the playtesting, um, but you won't find my name there, and that's a fun story for another day. Um, that uh, we are at three years, and they are still releasing stuff that was promised for the Kickstarter. That they were like, "Yeah, yeah, we'll have it. We'll have it next year," um, and it's, it's it's going on year three of still getting some of the stuff from that Kickstarter. So, and it happens. And we both know that that's only happening out of obligation because the Kickstarter funded. It's also happening that way because this person burns bridges um, and is known in the local community for uh, ha having done this at multiple tables. Uh, they did a playtest for the second edition of their game. It was vastly different than the original, and they didn't tell anybody that was coming to play it, and they invited fans of the original, um, and the they didn't get any good feedback, and they basically told everyone that they didn't know what they were talking about, so. Yeah. Fun times. Oh, Josh, that is absolutely a thing, is, like, indies having to churn out content to pay bills. Yeah, that is uh, not an entirely separate topic, but definitely a thing that can affect direction, can affect artwork, can affect writing. Like, there's a lot of stress that comes with having to pay bills. Um, and that stress... Inevitably, inevitably bleeds into projects. Pardon me, I can't speak, apparently. Um, but yeah, there's certain things people can do where, like, especially if you have the ability to hire other people, sensitivity readers, but also um, a solid editor and someone who edits uh, not just for TTRPGs or for fiction, but someone who has experience editing both can cover a lot of continuity errors because they'll catch them. Um, you know, it's that idea of like, you almost have to read an in-development TTRPG with a couple different mindsets. You have to look at it as a rule set. So you have to look at and be able to see how the rules interlock. But you also have to look at intent. You have to look at what the game's encouraging. Um, you know, when it comes to D&D, it encourages a specific style of play. So when you are editing a supplement for D&D, you have to look at it and say, okay, is this going to encourage that same style of play or is this going to be something that builds on it or is this going to be something that breaks it? How does that affect intent? And that all ties back into tech because, you know, Eberron's a great example. Eberron breaks the rules of so much D&D magic in its very existence in some very fantastic ways and in some very fantastic thematic ways as well. But it also needed some oversight with regards to okay this is cool now how do we make it more comfortable for players to step into this setting and that's where i feel like they flubbed ever on a little bit especially with the re-release of it for 5e Sorry, I added Nightbot today. I've never worked with Nightbot, and uh, somebody just got a spamming thing. They were timed out for five seconds, and 34 messages were deleted. Uh, it might have been them dropping a link. That does happen. No, it was spamming with caps, and honestly, I just don't care. So I, I, I just went in and tried to figure out how to remove all that. So... Um, Stop yelling in chat, Josh. God. I know. He's, the, he's also re rewarded as the top chatter right now, apparently. <laughs> uh, so top chatter and... Uh... Alright, that I, I fixed Nightbot, I think. Um, so we are about two minutes out from um, the finale. Uh, so we haven't heard a whole lot from Space Moose and Robo. Uh, is there anything that you guys want to try and toss in at the last minute or say, um, get your voices a little bit more out there? Um, I'm not sure. You were talking earlier what technologies you would like to see in a tabletop RPG setting. I have a background in, in uh, physics and mathematics, so I'm real big on um, a well-defined energy system 
in any tabletop mm -hmm. RPG. Like if you gave me a 600 page book that, you know, went on the four different types of forces in a fantasy setting, I'd be all over that. I admit that doesn't quite intrigue the vast majority of people out there. They probably would glaze over, but that's kind of the, the sweet spot that you have to hit when you're developing these sorts of things like Crow was talking about basically paying the bills. You can't go and uh, develop a system specifically for me that I love or I could develop it for me, but is it gonna gain traction in a wider audience? And is that something that people would you know, want that sort of peanut butter in their chocolate you know, when they're coming to put these systems together, so. I'm going to bug Crow. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so you said uh, you wanted uh, medical tech, right? Yes. Uh, I say no. We don't need it at all. Ooh. Okay. <laughs> like, okay. at all. And I'm going to tell you this, why. Um, have you heard you know, in TV shows, I'm not that I'm not that kind of doctor. Yeah, absolutely. Right. I'm not that kind of healer. Fair enough. Okay, that's fair. Yeah, so we could have different classes of healers. I mean and no tech or bandages basically. First aid. Absolutely. And I feel like that's a completely viable alternative for it. For me it's taking that problem of if you only have one type of healing all right the rest of medicine has to catch up now like it, it's that idea of like okay you've introduced a panacea into the world but not everybody has access to it so what do they do in the meantime which is something i love about uh role master um because there are i think like five different ways to be a healer between magic and then things like first aid and like um medical skills and stuff like that like it, it definitely has that that varying level that you know you don't need a whole bunch of medical tech because it's covered between skills and uh professions and things like that so you've sort got insurance it's another party member <laughs> <laughs> Jules, you didn't steal it back to husbandry as much as I, I thought did. you would. <laughs> <laughs> well, it turns out it's it's pretty difficult to uh, to to work, you know, uh, goat husbandry and uh, and agricultural um, season uh, season cycles into uh, into discussions of game mechanics. So. <laughs> well, I will say something. I don't know if you noticed it in chat, but they were talking about how they wanted a flying cow mount a war yeah. cow flying cow mount mm -hmm. yes yes i do too <laughs> i can hear flight of the valkyries starting even now <laughs> just replace it with moose <laughs> all right well um this is it for our hour um definitely want to do this again i feel like we've still got more stuff that we could talk about within this specifically um let's go around and everybody plug something um uh plug something that you're involved in or just say uh hi or hey or whatever we'll start with uh jules oh come on start okay um well a, a friend of mine and i are working on supplements specifically for um mounts for uh it's like having a, a, a set of templates for uh, for all different kinds of horses and a set of templates for a, a, for a bunch of different kind of war goats or, you know, stuff like that. Uh, familiars and mounts and companions and that kind of thing. Specifically for adding in flavor. So we're not done with that yet, but uh, when it comes to fruition, I'll, I'll send you the link. Coming soon. Crow? Uh, yeah, I just released the playtest for uh, what was once called Etherborn, now known as Ether, because I'm lazy and it's easier to say. Um, <laughs> that's basically the entire point behind the name change. But uh, you can find that uh, through my Twitter, at Eldritch Pro, um, or you can just ping me about it anywhere you find me on the internet, because I can't shut up about it all as it is. 
Space Moose. Uh, so coming soon through uh, Spilldale Studios, where I do some editorial and uh, design work. Uh, we're coming out with uh, Ramshackle, our uh, nautical theme setting uh, about a giant pilot, uh, pirate island of a bunch of crashed together pirate ships uh, with mysteries in the depths and uh, some new technology, new creatures, new uh, setting information that you can plug into any setting. So uh, we just finished some behind the scenes work on that. So that should be coming in the near future. Nice. Nice. Robo? Um, I am working on two games. Soon, TM. Um, also, I know I remember you mentioning uh, not having enough Hispanic uh, game devs and stuff. Uh, follow my buddy Miguel Angel Espinosa at Chantolo RPG on Twitter. He's got some really good stuff. Send me a link in Discord. Yeah, you got it. Uh, his website, smokingmirrorgames.com. That's easy to remember. Then you can find me on Twitter at robo underscore EP. And you all shit post. That's about it. <laughs> uh, and I am Mr. RPG Hour. Uh, I am one of the hosts of RPG Hour, where we do one shots. Um, I help behind the scenes on Mrs. RPG Hour's upcoming show. Uh, our Adventures, H-O-U-R, uh, which is for FEMS, POC, and LGBTQ folks uh, playing one-shots. Uh, they do it a little bit differently. Um, uh, we are also, everybody else here is also involved in the Star Wars campaign that's uh, coming soon uh, to podcatchers near you. Um, and it, it, it's basically, even though there are Jedi, it's mostly about explosions. Um it's mostly become about explosions. Um, and uh, Mrs. RPGR and I are working on a game called Hexus, uh, where you can play a cow folk or you can play a witch um, and you can shift uh, the time period to be either uh, uh, Old West or uh, Modern Day. Uh, and it's about playing in the Weird West or playing your neighborhood witch. Uh, and, and until the dice roll again. <laughs>